0: Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill
1: Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we are going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums of all time.
0: And today's album is The Color and the Shape by Foo Fighters. Woo! The Color and the Shape was released on May 20th of 1997. It has certified sales of 3.5 million units worldwide with 2.4 million of those being sold in the US. This album is particularly noteworthy because it is the first one that we're doing that is not ranked on any of the three Rolling Stone lists that we've been using as our baseline.
1: This is the whole spirit of season two.
0: Why did we choose uh, the color and the shape for this one?
1: For for me, it's a couple of things. For, first and foremost, I absolutely love the Foo Fighters. They're my favorite band, and I absolutely love their whole catalog. And this album is particularly meaningful for me. But beyond that, you and I have been talking a lot lately about setting up for season two and with the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert just happening on September 27th in Los Angeles we felt it was a good time to do a tribute to the Foo Fighters and do The Color and The Shape.
0: So before we get to that, Bill, why don't you tell us what was going on in the 90s, 97 timeframe?
1: So this is the most recent album we've done thus far. I mean, we've been doing albums that are 50 years old. uh, And this album is... Really? (laughs) Yeah. This is
0: the newest album.
1: Hunky Dory, 1971, right? This album, 1997. So this, this is the newest album, 25 years old. Wow. So the newest album that we've done thus far, it's still a 20 plus year old yeah. album. But 1997, Bill Clinton's the president. There was a lot of interesting things that happened in 1997. Princess Diana was killed in a car crash. Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear. He you know made him the meal deal. Uh, Tiger Woods won his first master's championship, the youngest ever to win a master's. Boris Kasparov The great chess champion lost to a computer. It was the first time ever that a computer, IBM Deep Blue, beat a chess master. J.K. Rowling published Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in the UK. Netflix was founded. Google.com was registered as a domain. And Carlos the Jackal is caught and sentenced in France, Tone. Wow, the Jackal. In the movies, we've got Titanic the Full Monty, Donnie Brasco, Goodwill Hunting and LA Confidential, so a lot of really really good movies going on in 1997. There were some t- interesting TV debuts in 1997, South Park, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, King of the Hill, Ally McBeal, The View and the Teletubbies. In sports, Pete Sampras won his 10th Grand Slam. He won Wimbledon.
0: I uh, have a special connection to the Teletubbies. My Nickname in one of the teams I was on back in this time frame was Tinky Winky. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you can't, do, you can't do that while I'm taking a freaking drink of tea. I swear. Are you, are you trying to kill me? You're trying to kill me. <laughs> yeah, I was Tinky Winky and uh my my boss at the time, she um bought each of us little uh Teletubbies like beanie baby type dolls and you know, and we each had our assigned character and I was I was Tinky winky (laughs) I've got nothing. (laughs) So there were some really interesting number one albums that year. There were a total of 28 different albums. You know, we've had some years where there has been seven number one albums for the whole year. 28 different number ones that year. The one that was at number one the longest was No Doubt with Tragic Kingdom. And they had the first seven weeks of the year. Uh, And they actually had been number one at the end of 1996. So that was a carryover. So no doubt, Tragic Kingdom was the longest tenured number one. The top seller for the year was Spice Girls with Spice. And it was an interesting year because the entire spectrum of music was represented. You had the Divas with number one albums. Mariah Carey, Barbra Streisand, and Janet Jackson all had number ones. You had Pop with Tragic Kingdom and Spice. Uh, as well as Boys to Men and the Men in Black soundtrack. You had country represented. George Strait, Garth Brooks, and Leanne Rhimes all had number one albums. Classic rock was in the mix. You had U2, Aerosmith, and Fleetwood Mac with number ones. And you even had metal and electronic punk represented with Metallica and The Prodigy. Uh, but more importantly, this year signals. What I call, and I didn't read this anywhere, but I, I think it signals the cementing of hip-hop and rap into the mainstream, because eight different artists were number one in 1977, uh, 1997. Uh, and they include uh, Wu-Tang with uh, Wu-Tang Forever, and then you had Notorious B.I.G. with Life After Death. That was released posthumously after he uh, died in March. This was released in July. And then you had albums also by Puffy, uh, Puff Daddy and Mace. Uh, and then Puffy and Mace were featured on uh, Biggie's No Money No Mo- Mo Problems, which is really so one we, of my favorite songs.
1: So as we do more current albums, does that mean that you're going to do a rap album with me? I
0: mean, it depends. We'll right. we'll discuss. Maybe maybe gonna season 3. I'm going to
1: keep I'm going to keep chipping away at you on that. So,
0: season 3, I'm going to have some uh things that I'm insisting on for season 3 and then maybe we can <laughs> trade off for uh a rap uh, album in season 4. We we will see. Yeah. So, um, yes, that's all, you know, really important arrival of uh, hip hop and rap into the mainstream. But that doesn't mean that they were the dominant force still, because there were four albums that weren't number one in 97, but they were all released in November of 97 and would go on to be enormous sellers. Uh, Shania Twain's Come On Over has claimed sales of 40 million records and is the seventh biggest selling album of all time. That came out in November of 97. Celine Dion, Let's Talk About Love also came out that month and has claimed sales of 31 million. He mentioned Titanic, uh, the movie came out. Well, that soundtrack has claimed sales of 27 million albums. And that also came out in November. And then finally, um, we talked about Spice by the Spice Girls. Well, then the Spice World movie and soundtrack came out in November with claimed sales of 14 million. So just in that one month at the end of the year, those four albums came out and sold 110 million records.
1: So I have to interject. There's a few albums that you did not mention that just I, I would be like negligent if I didn't bring up. So Radiohead, OK Computer, 1997. Phenomenal, phenomenal album. Erica Badu, Baduism, phenomenal album the verve urban hymns with bittersweet symphony phenomenal album so th- there was a lot of other stuff there that maybe didn't make it to the top of the charts but some really good stuff you also didn't mention one of my other favorite rap artists missy misdemeanor Elliot, super duper fly 1997.
0: well i couldn't list it all so thanks for filling in the gaps for me bill i'm going to continue with the top singles of the year And we're going to circle back to a couple of these. So we mentioned uh, one of my personal favorites, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Obviously, that came out this year. Uh, Candle in the Wind was the number one song of the album. And that's not the original. That's uh, a 97 re-release.
1: because of the princess diana uh, piece and and it's interesting I, and i know where you're going with you know, so f- finish your couple of songs and then i think we can connect the dots on a couple yeah. of these so uh
0: then you had the you know the double single of you were meant for me and foolish games by jewel that was the number two song of the year i'll be missing you by puffy and faith evans unbreak my heart by tony braxton and then you had a couple of other uh, really notable songs in I Believe I Can Fly by the infamous, now infamous R. Kelly, How Do I Live by Leanne want Rimes, Wannabe by Spice Girls, Quit Playing Games by Backstreet Boys, and Mbop by Hanson. Love me some Hanson. Yeah.
1: So the, the thing that's interesting, you know, top singles wise with Candle in the Wind and I'll Be Missing You both as songs to love, you know, people that were greatly loved that were lost. Were, that passed that year that were lost that year mm-hmm. so it's it just you know very very powerful that a few of those songs were uh, connected to that
0: so the last couple of songs i'll mention are there's semi charmed life by third eye blind and and that song has had remarkable staying power i hear that all the time and then we've got me uh, through this <laughs> semi-charmed kind of life maybe you ben. can do it Bill. I want something else. See, if you want to... Not listening (laughs) when you say goodbye. See, I thought you were going to hold out for No Diggity by uh, Blackstreet.
1: Uh, Yeah, I like the way you work it, but no.
0: no. And then the last one I'll mention is Hypnotized by Biggie. uh, And the reason is that I never hear that song without thinking of... Derek Jeter. That was one of his prominent walk-up songs. Walk-up music, yeah. Yeah, yeah, walk-up music. And every time I hear Hypnotize, I imagine uh, uh, Derek uh, stepping up to the box.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, so that was it for the uh, top singles of the year. Do you want to start by telling me a little bit about your history with the album?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for me, uh, the color and the shape was something that I listened to when it came out. Uh, So I, I was a big Nirvana fan, as I had mentioned, uh, you know, when we did the Nirvana pod and a project that was connected to Dave Grohl was something that I was going to be interested in. So got the album, listened to the album. And really th- the thing I remember most about that album is driving to work. Grohl was on Howard Stern in the morning, and it was it was a few months after the album came out. And Howard Stern pushed Grohl to play something, play something live in the studio, and he had, he had never done Everlong acoustic. He's like, I don't even know if it's gonna work. I mean, I, I can remember the clip vividly. I don't even know if it's gonna work. I, don't, I you know, I'm not sure. I'll I'll give it a shot. And he goes into playing Everlong, and the song went from a song that I really liked on the album to a song that I couldn't get out of my head, um, and became one of my favorite songs of all time. So it, it, and and I remember the quote afterwards, you know, Howard Stern's like, man, it really stands up, you know, and and it really did. I mean, it went from being, you know, this song that was on this album to being something that got viral from that point. And that album really kind of took off from there.
0: I want to put a pin in that because I want to circle back to that exact conversation when we talk about Everlong in the uh, track review. Is that cool?
1: That is cool.
0: All right. Well, then I mentioned earlier that my personal history is very short. I like the Foo Fighters. I saw them. I was lucky enough to see them a couple of years ago. Um, And speaking of friends that we've lost, I got to see it with um, Colleen and Willie and then my friend Todd Vazdovic, who's since passed. So that was uh, one of the last really good times that I had with him while he was healthy. Um, So shouts to Todd. The. Foos were amazing in concert. So I was not a longtime fan. I was familiar with, you know, the songs that everybody knows, um, but I wasn't a fan. But really, as has happened so many times as we've done these shows, digging into the albums, I've really just fallen in love with the music. So short personal history, but loved this album. All right. All right so, so now why don't we talk about the album a little bit. Yeah. Great. So um, I'll start with just some quick album facts. We have, uh, you know, Dave Grohl is the band leader, obviously, Uh, lead vocals, guitars and drums. Pat Smear is the uh, lead guitarist. Uh, Nate Mendel is the bass player and Gil Norton produced their album. They started recording the album at a place called Bear Creek Studios in late 1996. And this is like a 10 acre farm in rural Washington. And Grohl described those sessions as, kind of a bad experience, and they used very little of the material from those sessions uh, in the final uh, recording of the album. They took a break for the holidays, and Dave went home to Virginia, uh, visited and hung out with his mom in his childhood home, and while he was there, he did some recording, and he came up with the chord progression forever long, and and he figured out that song, and and that song really opened up the door for the rest of the album. They, they came back, they reconvened uh, they decided to go down to Grandmaster Recorders in Hollywood, and from January to February of '97, they pumped out the album, and that is the finished product that we have today.
1: And Tone, we we normally have a segment on album covers, but I'm not going to bother talking about this album cover too much. It's just kind of an odd cover with connected uh, sticks and balls.
0: All right. Well, then why don't we uh, instead spend that time on the artist background?
1: So as we've discussed in the Nirvana pod, Dave Grohl was the drummer for Nirvana. And while he's the drummer in Nirvana, he's writing songs. And, and Kurt Cobain actually encouraged Dave Grohl a lot to write his songs. So he would run songs by Kurt, and Kurt was very, very much uh, you know supportive of Dave's writing. And Nirvana even practiced several of the songs that would go on to become Foo Fighters tracks, but they never made it obviously onto Nirvana songs. So Grohl recorded a demo tape as a one-man project, and he was playing all the instruments. And the tape got circulated and got a lot of interest and he decided that basically he was going to put a band together around this project and this is this is post the nirvana days uh so he was looking for people to join him in this band so he heard about the disbanding of a seattle-based band called sunny day real estate and he drafted the bass player nate mendel and also the drummer william goldsmith and you noticed that when tony mentioned the performers on the track he didn't mention William Goldsmith. Well, William Goldsmith joined the band um, and recorded with them at Bear Creek, Bear Creek Studios. But as Tony mentioned, they scrapped most of that uh, because ultimately what Dave Grohl felt was that Goldsmith wasn't capturing the drums the way that he wanted it to be played on the album. And he wound up re-recording the drums himself, which angered William Goldsmith and William Goldsmith left the band.
0: You know, um, adi- um, hang on. So there was a uh, there's a line. I, I can't remember if it was uh, the producer, or if it was Grohl that said it. But uh, at the towards the end of those sessions, uh, one of them described Nate and William as the rhythm section with no rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> <great> <laughs> so just to give you an idea of the level of displeasure uh, that that Dave uh, had.
1: So on, on top of Nate Mendel and William Goldsmith, Grohl also asked Pat Smear, who was, was an awesome guitarist and touring guitarist with Nirvana. So he was the guitarist that they brought in to do a lot of the, the tour work when they needed to you know, play things live that they couldn't play as a three-piece. So Pat Smear was with them uh, at the beginning. So when Grohl wind up re-recording the drum pieces, William Goldsmith left, and they found themselves without a drummer. So in the... Spring of 1997, Dave Grohl picks up the phone and calls his good friend Taylor Hawkins, who, has happened, who happened to be the touring drummer for Alanis Morissette at the time. Uh, and he was looking for a recommendation from Taylor Hawkins as to who he could actually find to play the drums for the Foo Fighters. And Taylor Hawkins said, hey, how about me? That's when Taylor joined the band. So March 18th, 1997, he officially became a member of the Foo Fighters. He didn't record any of the tracks on the album, but he did appear in the music video for Monkey Wrench, and he did appear with them on the tour. Uh, and shortly after the album, Pat Smear left uh, and then came back to Foo Fighters in the early 2000s. So he, he left for a bit. And that's uh, kind of the background and lead up to the, the band and, and how they kind of congealed into the color and the shape. That's, that's what the band looked like at that point in time.
0: All right, so how about we do some something you might not know?
1: Oh, I love it.
0: So I'll start with my usual softballs. The, the first one is the origin of the album title. You've got the color and the shape, and it's not anything deep or meaningful. It really stemmed from during one of the recording sessions. Gil Norton, uh, the producer, liked to go in his you know uh, downtime, and he liked to go thrifting. And he picked up a bowling pin... And they asked him, Well, why did you buy this? And he goes, I like the color and the shape of it. And they they for some reason that phrase just really resonated with them and they decided to name the album. And and as further proof of that, you'll notice that the spelling of the word color is the British spelling with the O-U-R. And that is a nod to the fact that Gil Norton was British and he was the Uh, originator of the title of the album. So that's my first little tidbit. The second one is uh, one of the later tracks in the album is called Walking After You. And uh, while this album came out in 97, uh, sometime in the 2000s, I can't remember exactly when, uh, they were doing one of those X-Files movies. So it was long after the series had ended and they're now doing the movies. And Dave was a huge fan of the show. So he re-recorded Walking After You and he submitted it to the producers of The X-Files movie, hoping that they would use it. And sure enough, they did. And he said that he was hoping that they would like it because he felt it was a song about like longing love. And he was hoping that in his imagination, that song would be uh, emblematic of Mulder and Scully finally getting together.
1: So you gave me a softball connection to my first something you might not know. So I love the X-Files tie-in to, to my first something you might not know. Are you ready for it? I, I, and I, I love the Gil Norton piece, the color and the shape. I actually didn't know that. And I love the spelling, the hat tip. I, I think that's awesome.
0: There you go. So hit me. All right. So do
1: you know what Foo Fighters means, Tony?
0: I am embarrassed to say I have not a clue.
1: All right. So Dave Grohl is a huge UFO enthusiast. So he was reading all kinds of books about UFOs and, and uh, all the uh, things that kind of go along with it. And back in World War II, the Allied pilots, what they called UFOs were Foo Fighters. And ah. that's how he came up with the title for Foo Fighters. Wow. And the, the name, and the name of his recording company is Roswell Records, again, because he's so fascinated and, 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 and loves the whole UFO of it.
0: I had no idea. That's an incredible connection that, that explains the I remember reading like he loved the X-Files. I said, "Boy, that's just, you know, a little weird to be super it, passionate complete, about the X-Files, lead enthusiast,
1: complete enthusiast of, of UFOs, like right. completely e- excited about it." And yeah.
0: Well, now it makes a lot of sense.
1: All right. So I got I got a few more for you. Not, nothing uh, nothing as deep as maybe some of the the past ones we've done, but I got a few more that are that are interesting. So, uh, Post Nirvana, so right after the band split, Grohl gets a call from one of his absolute idols, Tom Petty. And Tom Petty's drummer had left the Heartbreakers. And he said, hey, Dave, I know, you know you've know you got a lot going on with you know, Kurt's death and whatnot, but I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live. Would you join me as the drummer for the Heartbreakers on Saturday Night Live? Wow. So Dave Grohl joined Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in their performance on Saturday Night Live and then was asked to join the Heartbreakers as their drummer. And he had to think long and hard. And I actually remember this in, in I read uh, Dave Grohl's book, The Storyteller, great book. And he really like said he was so conflicted because he loved Tom Petty so much and was you know just so honored to be invited. And they were such a cool band. And he's like, I just can't do it. I want to do my own thing. And he wound up turning them down.
0: Wow. Hey, and so I, I didn't know you were going to do Tom Petty. So this is a perfect uh, connection to... You know, some, uh, a recurring theme for us. We get a lot of slack for this. But over the weekend, Stevie Nicks and Eddie Vedder performed Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Tom Petty, there you go. So we've got Petty, we've got a little Ed Ved, and then we've got, you know, our, our uh, patron saint, Stevie Nicks.
1: All right. And so I've got another another tie into a, another pod that we did with Prince. So here's here's another another little something you might not know. So the Foo Fighters and specifically Grohl love Prince's music and, and they really wanted to do one of his songs. So they covered Darling Nikki and they wanted to put it out on one of their albums. Prince went berserk and was not OK with it. And to this day, they've not been able to release that on any of their uh, any of their albums so I, I think there's a bootleg of it out there somewhere and whatnot wow. but they've not re- they've not released it anywhere but when prince did the super bowl and whether this was an F U or whether this was a, i like you guys too prince did best of you at the super bowl did he really so he did so prince at his at his super bowl performance did best of you
0: well um so for something that you might not know now me and prince have something else in common because I've been doing best of you for the last six months in my house and I'm pretty sure Colleen and the kids want to poke their ears out every time they hear me uh, start it up. So me and Prince, best of you fans. There you go.
1: There you go. There you go. All right. So last, last little tidbit. And I think this can kind of play into some of the conversation we have about the tracks. Dave Grohl really didn't have a lot of formal music training. So, uh, you know, reading his book he talked about all of the support his mom was incredibly and is incredibly supportive of him like to the point where just as a as a single mom you know cuz his parents split up she was an incredible support system for him to bringing him to to clubs to play and and really getting him out there and and, and being okay with him dropping out of out of high school to beco- go become a drummer in a band and and whatnot so she was an incredibly supportive mother but he didn't really have a lot of formal training he taught himself a lot And his approach to the guitar, and this is a quote from the the book, The Storyteller, basically he says that he plays the guitar like it's a drum set, and specifically Everlong, the the guitar riff on Everlong, he uses the low E string as the kick drum, he uses the A A and D strings as the snares, and the G, B, and high E are the cymbals. So he has the kick-snare relationship and the riff, and then the chorus comes around and all the high strings wash in. And it basically gives it that percussive dynamic. So he really looks at how he plays the guitar as the same as how he plays the drums, which is just absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah, uh, I I have the book. I've read a little bit of it, but I didn't get that far into it. But that percussive nature of the guitar riffs, I think I even... Now I had that in my notes for one of the songs and not knowing that because that is yep. how his guitar plays. It's it's Com- like a percussion instrument.
1: Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. That's one of the things I love about them. So yeah.
0: yeah. I guess that's a good segue then. So why don't we start talking about the tracks? All right. So the leadoff track is a song called Doll. And it's it's really kind of strange, but I think it's a really cool way to open the album because it's almost like a prelude, you know, like an intro or uh, like a prelude to it. Like we're about to uh, rock. So let's just warm you up, ease you into this. There's a lot of
1: on this album, soft and hard. Like he, he they really mix the soft and hard really, really well. And, and the soft vocal start on this song. And it and again, goes back to something I think we were talking about on the last podcast on on the uh, Pearl Jam, it almost sounds like a radio, the vocal, mm-hmm. the soft vocals. It sounds like you're hearing it on the radio in the background. It's so cool.
0: It's exactly what I was thinking was the, how the, uh, how 10 opens up with once. And, and yep. it's not quite exactly the same, but it's the same concept of it, just sort of the same, lulling you in.
1: Yeah. It's the same vibe. It's and, the then, same and vibe, then, and it's, and, and it's similar again, back to Pink Floyd, wish you were here where it kind of brings you in with the, you know, kind of sounds like you're listening to the radio and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, back in the day. Right. So it's, it's very cool opening.
0: So you touched on the soft and hard and, and, folks uh bill and i haven't talked at all about any of these songs any of this album uh and unfortunately it sounds like we're going to have a lot of the same themes when we talk about these songs because that's all over my notes (laughs) yep all right so we go from doll to monkey wrench
1: so monkey wrench with the hard guitar open and the killer (laughs) pause that pause
0: mm-hmm. makes
1: that song. Yeah. It is so, it's just like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm like, you know, catches your breath. It's so amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. And that pause is only half a second. It's, it's no more than a second, but it feels, it's so powerful. It feels long. Yeah. It, it feels powerful. Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so monkey wrench is, is, is such a great song. It, you know, again coming out of Doll, and then you go into Monkey Ranch, and it's so hot. And this, I'm looking at my notes, and and it's propulsive, you know, and it's propulsive yeah, just, just and energetic. Killer, killer and rock
1: song, absolute killer rock song.
0: I didn't have a lot of notes on lyrics, but I do love the bridge in on this song. The you know, one last thing before I quit, I never want it anymore. Yeah. Angry and and powerful, and I just love that bridge.
1: Yeah, no, completely agree.
0: So then we get to Hey Johnny Park. Oh, I forgot that was going to be one of my something's uh, you didn't know. Um, I'm well, sure well, in you your research, did you come across you how the origin of the title? I did not, but I'm I'm dying to hear it. So so Hey Johnny Park um, is simply a call out to. His best friend growing up when he was a little kid, like ages five to 12, he says, lived across the street and then they lost touch. And he said, hey, maybe if I just uh, call this, uh, write a song and call it Hey Johnny Park, maybe he'll call me someday.
1: <laughs> that's awesome.
0: So that's the uh, origin of the title. That's, for such the song. A,
1: that's such a Dave Grohl thing to do.
0: <laughs> it really is. Um, but I really and, like and, this song too. It's it's got a simple structure, but the chorus is really good,
1: and, and the the guitar riff and the soft vocal and it, you know just kind of how it melts together. It's it's a it's a smooth song. I love it.
0: Next we have my poor brain. Any thoughts Man, you want to share? that song
1: starts out like noise. It feels like the noise in my brain, and leads into pop dynamic for a bit. That then goes hard at the end it it, so it's all over the place it feels like sonically telling a song a story and basically going to you know going to the what what it's like in his head and I, i i love the song
0: i'm curious i don't have the album or the cd so i listen you know on streaming and on streaming it goes uh immediately from the end of hey johnny park into this my poor brain so this it's almost as if like it's uh you know one continuous I haven't, track.
1: I haven't listened to the CD in God knows how long, so I don't remember. Um, is that how I, you I hear it too? I, I want I want it, yeah, it is how I hear it when streaming. And I I believe that's how it was on the CD, but I don't recall.
0: Yeah. So I don't know if uh maybe this is a good time to mention this. So Gil Norton, the reason why uh, do you know why he uh why Dave selected Gil Norton? I do not. So the reason was uh gill norton produced two of the pixies albums and you know we talked about the Pixies, soft
1: soft, soft and hard yeah. exactly
0: so the, the soft and hard so in this album it's all over the place and yep.
1: yeah it really does like and and hearing like knowing that connection tony like that makes all the sense it, in the world like it, all the sense in the world
0: when i saw that and then re-listened to the albums it all clicks in because it's i think maybe eight at least eight tracks where you have that whole uh soft hard quiet loud uh, business yep now we get to wind up
1: again a kind of a percussive repetitive guitar riff that leads into a really solid rock song
0: yeah that's my notes that's why i wrote it said just a good hard rock song and and i think about this run from monkey wrench to wind up (laughs)
1: It's killer. Oh, it's it's, cr- it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah.
0: yeah. And we were talking about my experience with this album. I hadn't heard any of these songs except my, Monkey Wrench until, you know, four days ago. And I love just that whole run from Monkey Wrench to Wind Up is great.
1: Yeah, completely agree.
0: And that kind of ends that hard rock.
1: Well, well then, you, run. then you go into, yeah, then you go into Up in Arms, which, I, you know, the vibe I got with Up in Arms tone is a, it's almost like a soft Beatles tune, like you get the, like, it's almost like it's a Lennon singing a soft Beatles tune, and then it speeds up drastically. And I love it. it. It gets to this, just like locomotive speed at the end.
0: Exactly. And, you know, so the first verse and the first chorus is super slow, like you were saying, and super quiet, super slow. But when they then speed it up, they repeat the verse and chorus so it's not a new yeah. verse it's not a new chorus it's it's literally the it, it's, same it's verse just, and chorus but they do it like just shot out
1: of a cannon exactly
0: yeah. it's like double time shot out of a cannon um and, and and the whole song is only 2 minutes and 14 seconds and it's a, a really really fun 214
1: yeah I completely agree
0: that brings us to my hero
1: that, that drum guitar bass open one of the one of my favorites ever
0: yeah it it's it's iconic it's an iconic song and he wrote this uh, a month after Kurt Cobain's death and although the al- this album came out 2 years later this song was written within it, a month it, it of was, his death
1: yeah and it was totally you know a a tribute to his his friend and someone he respected thought highly of yeah. obviously so
0: yeah so this is a, a an absolute classic from this album so on the flip side we get to see you
1: <laughs> so see you is Really, for me, the pop song with soft vocals on this album—it's—it's it's very got a very kind of even keel pop dynamic to it.
0: So, what this song reminded me of, and and you'll have to remind me of the name of the song, but on uh, on Hunky Dory, what was the song that didn't quite fit, and then I talked you into into really liking it? <laughs> 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 so. Uh...
1: Oh geez, yeah, I can't uh, no, remember it anymore. I'm I'm, anymore. A, I'm, I'm, a, I'm drawing I'm a blank, but yeah, but but I, this... I put it on I put it on the mixtape, so <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh,
0: so see you. it it doesn't fit. I don't I don't really you know it, it's it's not a bad song, but it doesn't make any sense in this album.
1: So it actually fits more with the, the next album with the big me type vibe. Mm-hmm. Like it, it fits that more than, than the, the color and the shape in my mind. So I, I don't disagree.
0: Oh, so speaking of big me. Yeah.
1: The Mentos. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I'm i uh, I'm chewing on some Mentos, uh, even though big me is not on this album. Um, uh, that's actually my first recollection of the food fighters. And, and,
1: and, and tell them, look what I got. Look what I got. I got ah, Mentos too.
0: nice. <laughs> So yeah, so see you. I don't understand what it's doing on this album, and one thing that but is- I
1: but I like I like the song. I just I, I I don't disagree with the comment though. I think it's it's maybe not the right place for it.
0: I'm looking down at the notes that I jotted, and I said it's a perfectly fine song, but I'm not sure how well it fits sonically or thematically. So yeah. you've said sonically, I've said sonically. Can you can you do twenty seconds on sonically for any of our listeners who had questions about? the word?
1: <laughs> so so I, I'm gonna say that um, we use sonically the way that Taylor Swift uses sonically, the way that Bruce Springsteen uses sonically in and it's kind of an evolving definition for the, for the word sonically. Uh, basically artists use it to describe how something sounds. Um, and I, I know the textbook definition might not be exactly the way that we're applying it, but it is the way that a lot of artists apply it. And I have heard it applied the same way by, uh, several other podcasts and specifically, uh, one of, one of the, uh, the, the ringer pods, uh, you know, m- music pods, uh, one of the guys who's like a PhD in music theory uses it the same way that we've been using it. So,
0: well then I will stick with Bruce and Taylor. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me.
1: All right. Fair enough.
0: Oh, so Hey, one last note on this song that, we don't like and doesn't fit on the album. So <laughs> Dave said that nobody wanted to put on the album except for him. And he said that to get it on the album, he re-recorded the drums trying to make it sound like crazy little thing called Love by Queen. Oh, that's that's hysterical. And, that is hysterical. And after seeing that quote and then listening, I can, I think, I don't know if a, I'm convincing bit, myself yeah. of it, but I think I can hear I, it. I, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. All right. So see you. So here we go to enough space.
1: So that you know, rock song open, softer lyrics in the middle, and then a hard thrash mm-hmm. at the end. Like it, it's I, again hard, soft, hard. The dynamic and and the way that they knit it together just so amazing.
0: Yeah, I don't have any particular notes on this other than you know the the quiet, loud, quiet, and 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 that it really rocks at the end. So now we get to February stars, and this song is. It took a while. I had to listen to it a couple of it, it, times. It
1: grows on you. Yeah.
0: So the first time I um I listened to the album, I did my initial rankings of the of the tracks. I had this 13th. I had this behind doll. Really? Yeah. The really? first, but then the more I listened to it, I'm not going to tell you where it went up, but I guess I'm maybe giving you a little intel. I like it a lot better than 13.
1: Yeah, so for me, the the soft opening that builds the crescendo, the, the almost like the wall of sound feeling, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the Phil Spector Beatles wall of sound, yep. um, it, it really amazing ending to the song. And I, I agree, it grew on me. It, it was the song that probably you know the first listened to, you know, that and and see you were the probably the two songs that maybe I didn't connect with in the first re listens in a long while, uh, and it's a great song.
0: What I like um about February stars is that first of all I don't really know what the song means but the first two verses are sung mournfully almost really quietly softly and and really with a sadness to it but then um when you get to the chorus at the end it's really aching like it's not sad it's hurt it's painful uh, it, it, yeah.
1: uh, no agreed it's 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 got a whole melancholy to it ah. I, I completely agree yeah and and this is one that they Don't really play in concert, so they they've only played this in concert like earlier, like since 2006. They've not played the song in concert.
0: I would love to see that one live. So now we get to Everlong. Ever hear of it?
1: One of my favorite rock songs of all time. It's just an amazing, amazing, and and I here's the thing. Like I grew to love it as the acoustic version, and I, 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 you know, if you would ask me 10 years ago, I probably would have said, "Oh, the acoustic version so much better." Ask me today. It's a, it's a coin toss. The, the rock full version of it is just, it blows you away. And, and especially when you see them do it live. And I've never seen them live. I had tickets to go see them this this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the, tri- the tragedy with, with uh, Taylor Hawkins. Seeing them in watching live performances, it's just an amazing song. It's special. you know. They, they do this as one of their encores a lot because it's just a special song.
0: Yeah, it's one of the enduring songs of the 90s. And and you mentioned that this is the 25-year anniversary of this album. And this song will be played 25 years from now. You know, yeah. I am 100% sure that 50 years after its release, this will be one of those songs that, uh, that people are still listening to. And so you actually um, mentioned something, perfect pivot to what I wanted to ask you about earlier. So that that Howard Stern uh, alternate version, uh, of this song is absolutely the version that I think of when when I hear Everlong in my head I hear that yep. version yep. and that yep. that made me think about some other instances of this and and we mentioned the candle in the wind earlier with uh, Elton John and I wanted to ask you are there any songs where the alternate versions are more uh, well known or remembered than the original studio versions and and what do you think of them what are some of them that come to mind
1: so, so for me, the um, Nirvana cover of the Bowie song. Uh,
0: Penny Royalty? No, no, the man. Oh, the
1: man, uh, uh, the man
0: who stole the world? The,
1: the man who stole Who's, the world. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, the man who stole the world, like I completely hear the Nirvana version when I hear that song. I, I love the Bowie version, but the Nirvana version is the version that I hear. And the, the, that MTV Unplugged version, I go straight to that.
0: Well, that's it's it's funny that you are interesting that you said that said that because one thing I thought was the all apologies from that. I yep. think that well, I that hear un, that
1: unplug that unplug was insane. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I hear. I I don't even know what the in, in utero uh, utero version sounds like. I, I only know what the uh, MTV unplugged version sounds like. Yeah, uh, yeah. So then we mentioned "Candle in the Wind" that '97 version. I don't know if this is true, but I suspect at least maybe for people of a certain age that that might be the version that they think of and not the original uh, from Elton John. And then for me, and I know we talked about this all the way in episode one, season one, uh, but bad by you two, The uh, wide awake in America version is absolutely the version of bad that, you know, is the real one.
1: So I'll call out to one other song for me is um, the, the, the Almond Brothers, Midnight Rider, the version on Live from Fillmore East, the live version. That I hear that when I hear that song.
0: Yeah, so that's what I wanted to mention when we were talking about Everlong, because what can you say? It's it's an iconic song. It's a, it's amazing, and and I think that that to me that that Stern live acoustic version is is the version, even as great as this the one on the album is.
1: Well, I, I think the Stern live acoustic was their viral moment. Like it really basically took the Foo Fighters from where they you know, could have been just a nice band too. Mm -hmm. I think they got a lot of attention from that stern session. For sure.
0: All right. We're on the way home. So walking after you, I think we, um, soft,
1: soft, hmm. open, calm, slow, steady, uh, solid song.
0: Yeah. And I think we, uh, we talked about that earlier with the X files connection. Yep. It'd be, uh, I I didn't see any of those movies, so now you know, it makes me wonder. You know, uh, imagining uh, Mulder and Scully maybe slow dancing in some awkward dark basement uh, to this song.
1: I didn't see any of the movies either, so can't can't help you. Yeah.
0: All right, so now uh, our last one for today, "New Way Home." What do you think?
1: So for me, it's it is the the melding of the hard guitar open and the the harmonious lyrics from Grohl. I, I think it's you know even tone in the opening and as a rock song, and then you've got the driving guitar and the driving drum beats, and it slows down at the break and it builds back up with a big finish. You know, you get again that slow, fast, slow, mm-hmm. like it, it, and fast, and it, and at the end, it's this build, 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 and it's again just awesome.
0: Yeah, no, I really like this, and I think it's a good uh, album closer too. You know, well, he's taking love us on this journey. A- Yep. Uh, yep. It started love, with it is, love it as the last track. Yeah. And, then, and we ended it here, New Way Home. It's him finding his way through some tough times. Yeah. I absolutely
1: love it as a, as a closing track on, on the album and, and and on an album that I think is just a phenomenal album start to finish. I mean, I, I think we can nitpick on you know whether everything fits perfectly. See You is probably the only song I, that I would agree with you. Might, might, might have had a, a better home on one of the other Foo's albums. Uh, but I just. Love this album, start to finish.
0: So that brings us to the next to the last segment of our show. It's the song draft. We're going to handle the song draft a little differently than we did in season one, Bill.
1: We are, Tony. So why don't we just give a quick refresher of what our song draft is, and then we'll we'll talk about how we're going to handle it this season. So first off, our song draft is basically every episode, Tony and I, at the end of the episode, we take turns selecting songs from the album. One of us goes first and we alternate picks until we have a little roster of songs, a team of songs that we basically put head to head and Tony thinks he's gonna pick the better team, I think I'm gonna pick the better team and that's our song draft. And we post that song draft on social media and basically ask that our listeners go and vote and tell us who do, who do you think did a better job. So with season two, what we realized is we didn't really give people a long runway to actually vote on our our song draft, so we wanted to try to get more people to have the opportunity to listen to our podcasts and then vote in our song draft. So, I think, Tone, what we talked about is we're gonna basically leave the song drafts open until the end of the year, end of the season, effectively.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we found that maybe twenty five, thirty percent of our listeners were beyond the first week, so that meant a whole bunch of people didn't get to vote. And you know, we want you know we're all for voting rights. And we want to make sure everyone has an opportunity to have their voice every, heard.
1: Every vote needs to be counted. Exactly.
0: So we're going to still do the song. Uh, you know, we're going to pick our songs, and we're going to encourage you all to uh, vote. But we're just going to leave it open until the end of the season.
1: And we'll do a, a, a wrap up of how we we do in the song drafts over the course of the season, and everybody will get to get a chance to hear how how uh, Tony and I stack up against each other, and one of us can make fun of the other.
0: <laughs> all right. So since we won't be doing last week's results. We'll just get started with this week's draft. Who picks first today? Well, Tony, you got to pick
1: first last week, so I get to pick first this week. And man, am I glad mm-hmm. that you won that coin toss last week, because I am super mm-hmm. glad that I get first pick this week. And I'm just not even going to leave any doubt. I'm taking Everlong.
0: Of course. And I'll take Monkey Wrench. Really? Yep. Holy moly. Um, I will take My Hero. And I'm going to take Hey Johnny Park.
1: Uh, That's where I was going to go. Nice. Um, I am going to go Wind Up.
0: I'm going to go February Stars.
1: That's where I was going to go next. Nice. And I am going to go... I'm going to go New Way Home. My Poor Brain. And I am going to go... I'm going to go Enough Space.
0: I'm going to go Up in Arms. Uh, I'm going to go doll. I'm going to go walking after you. And I think we agreed that that would close it out on an odd number. That
1: that does. We're not picking the last song on odd numbers, which I I think that works out much better this season. So I'm glad, I'm glad you suggested that. All right. So let's just do a quick recap tone. So, uh, and and by the way, I'm, I am flabbergasted that you picked monkey wrench. Number two, I, I I was, I, I was shocked, shocked. It's a great song. Love monkey wrench. But man, if you would have told me coming into this song draft that I was going to get Everlong and My Hero, damn. (laughs) All right. So at number one, Everlong. At number three, My Hero. At number five, Wind Up. At number seven, New Way Home. At number nine, Enough Space. And at number 11, Doll. That is my team of songs.
0: And my team is Monkey Wrench, Hey Johnny Park, February Stars, my poor brain, up in arms, and walking
1: after you. All right. Well, please vote. And I would say ver- vote. I would say vote early and often. But we really <laughs> want to, you know, promote voters' rights. Yes. Vote. Vote once. Uh, vote. Vote <laughs> when you can. And, and vote uh, at your convenience.
0: We- but please vote. And you mentioned uh, where? Where do we vote again? Is it in the uh, show description? So we put a.
1: We put a link in the show description to our song draft poll. Okay. Uh, So we have a, we have a Google form that basically records our results. uh, And we put that in our, we put a link in our show description. Great.
0: Okay. So that takes us to our last segment, final thoughts. And I'll start here. Um, I've already talked about this a lot. So I'll be quick. Didn't know this album at all going in, knew the three songs that everybody knew and have left loving this album, especially, you know, that stretch, uh, uh, if, you know, in the, on the, on the first half of the album, it's just a really great rock album. And then you have Everlong, which is just a, an absolute iconic classic.
1: So for me, I hadn't listened to this album end to end in a while. Um, I, had would actually, you know, with, with the whole project of listening to the, uh, Rolling Stone 500, Um, I have been occupied listening to a lot of different things. uh, And I actually did listen to their recent album, Medicine at Midnight, a bunch of times, because I actually really like that album. And it kind of brought me back to, man, I really love the Foo Fighters. And I started listening to their catalog again. And I I got back to The Color and the Shape, which is my all-time favorite Foo Fighters album. And it is just a tremendous album. Uh, I think it, it really highlights how amazingly talented Dave Grohl is uh, and he surrounds himself with talented people as well. And that's a part of being talented is knowing that you should surround yourself with talented people. You know, he's, he's a great songwriter. He's an amazing musician. I I, I love his vocals, but I, I think the thing that he does really well as well as he surrounds himself with, with people that are really talented. And he, and he did that with the Foo Fighters and the the band that he put together is a band and it, it came together on this album maybe not with with the drums because he wound up having to play them mostly on, on this album but shortly thereafter it came to, together with taylor hawkins and uh i just appreciate them so much uh amazing amazing group um if you haven't read dave grohl's uh, biography the storyteller i highly recommend it i i really recommend the audio because he narrates it and it's great um, and some some of the, the the asides and stories that he tells are just phenomenal. Uh, but love the Foo Fighters one of my one of my all time favorites probably probably my favorite band right now and absolutely love them. Um, and really had to think long and hard uh, about could I afford to try to buy a ticket to that uh, yeah. L. A. Taylor Hawkins tribute concert. I just couldn't swing it with three kids in college. So
0: yeah, I hear you. You know, you mentioned the uh, the uh, book and. I have the book, and I think I, I might try the audio because he's such a great storyteller. Oh my anyway. god,
1: Tony! You 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 have to do it on an audio. Yeah. He's an amazing storyteller, and it is it's in it's it in his voice, his own story in mm-hmm. his own voice. It's yeah. it's a tremendous tremendous audio book.
0: So, and you know, I actually have a couple of stories uh, that we're going to do in the after the pod because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Taylor Hawkins and I'm going to tie a little bit uh, that I saw in the Taylor Hawkins to the book. So we're going to do that after the pod. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. The last bit of business is that we end with you telling us where this album ranks in your in your uh, project, but this is the first time we're doing something that isn't part of, supposedly part of, part of this.
1: The it's not set. part of Rolling Stone's yeah. list, but it's a part of mine. Uh, so I, I rank it in my top 100 albums of all time. Uh, it is my 95th album of all time. Um, I, I I think it is just a spectacular rock album um, and underappreciated. I think, I think this album is underappreciated.
0: And with that, we've come to the end of Season 2, Episode 2 of Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Our next episode is going to be... The Killers, Hot Fuss. I love this band. I love this album. Another new discovery for me, and I can't wait to talk about them.
1: I agree. I, it's it's a band. I mean, I, I knew hits, but I, it's a new discovery for me as well. I absolutely love the Killers. All right. Well, then, until next week. Until next week. Thank you, everybody. All right. So, wait, Tone. I think we have a little bit where we want to keep talking about. Is that? Am I I fair in saying that?
0: Yeah, so I had some things that I wanted to hit on that were really uh, resonant uh, when I was watching the uh, Taylor Hawkins stuff and then thinking about the parts that I read in the book. So do you mind if I start start us off?
1: Go right ahead.
0: So in the book... Uh, early on in the book, he talks about just you know you you mentioned his mom and just how incredibly supportive she was and and she took him to you know jazz clubs as a, as a young boy you know and yep. and they would go I think it was like every Sunday and they would watch you know these these guys just play. Eventually he he sat in uh, started to sit in with them, but just being exposed to that and soaking that in and that was his you know music lessons. You know, he wasn't taking classes at School of Rock. He was going to these clubs and watching old pros really yeah. do it. Yeah, so, absolutely. So what connected uh, to the Taylor Hawkins special was, uh, and I'm talking about the London one, uh, Dave Chappelle was talking about how uh, he, you know, was hanging out with the band. He was hanging out with Taylor and his son. And after one of the shows, uh, in New York, they decided to go down to the Blue Note in uh, Greenwich Village, a place that I've been to. It's a really uh, uh, an iconic uh, jazz club in the city. And uh, they decided to go to the Blue Note, and 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 Chappelle was just talking about how Taylor was just sitting there and just talking to Shane about what he was seeing, and and they were just totally honed in on the drummers, and they were just talking about the craft. Of the drumming uh, that was going on at that club and, and that's one of uh, Chappelle's memories of you know really getting to know and, and and getting close with Hawkins and and that really reminded me of Dave's story and his mom
1: Yeah, oh great and and the thing that really resonates to me is is how much and and Grohl said this a few places during the the, the concert in Los Angeles and in, in Wembley is how many people, that Taylor Hawkins had connections with. Like all of these musical, and we've talked about this on our, our podcast so many times about all the musical connections in the community and whatnot, but it's not always true that people are friendly and nice and whatnot. And and the thing that I, I, and I don't know these people, but they just come across as really genuine, real people. And and when you see how many people came out for Taylor Hawkins and how many people said he was one of my best friends and you know how many people wanted to be there and, and just have this connection with him, it's just amazing. It really is amazing how, you know, making an effort and being there for people matters. And, uh, you know, it it seems like that's who Taylor Hawkins was. And it it really came out in both of the tribute concerts that way.
0: Yeah. One, I I, I totally agree. And you don't put on, you know, two shows, you know, for a drummer, you know, tribute shows for a drummer, unless those connections are so, real and deep and meaningful and help me out because I don't know if I caught this right, but like he and, uh, and Brian May from queen are, are really close. Very close. He's he's, he was close with so many people. Like he,
1: he's Chad Smith's son's godfather. He he's Perry Farrell's best friend. Like he's close with so many people. Like it, this, this is just this amazing, it's such a loss such a loss of this amazing person who touched so many lives. And it's just a shame to lose somebody so young that was so talented and meant so much to so many people. One of the things that I, I read just the other day, because I've been reading a lot, I've been watching all of the clips from the concert and reading a lot, uh, that the, the story, there's a clip that Miley Cyrus put on uh, her social media. Her and Taylor Hawkins were, were neighbors in LA. Uh, so he lived right next door and he found out she was moving. And shortly before he died, he called her and he left a message on her voicemail. And She posted that message to, to social media. And the message basically said, hey, Miley, so sad you're going to be moving. I'm really going to miss you. Uh, you know, I'm listening to Death Leopard right now. And, you know, man, photograph, what a song, man, you could kill that song so what song does she do at the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert photograph okay. with Def Leppard, mm-hmm. which is just, it's, it's amazing. Like just really, it was really thoughtfully put together the whole show. The other thing that, that jumped out at me um, and then maybe it's not a Taylor Hawkins, but it's a, it's a, it's a Van Halen. Um, so um, I, I don't, I don't know if you saw the the clips of of uh, the, the Van Halen songs that were done at the concert, but Holy crap. Can Wolfie Van Halen play guitar? Wolfie can play. Um uh, uh i mean i got to see him live at starland ballroom he, he was a member short of his band and dude can play like he was playing like r- rhythm and lead at the same time <laughs> just amazing um but him playing panama and hot for teacher at, in the la concert i mean just absolutely amazing and you know they, they um he'd made a point on social media that you weren't going to ever see him play uh you know Van Halen songs, uh, you know, because he's got his own career and wants to do his own thing and it's been done and he doesn't want to ride on the coattails of his, of his father. Um, and, he, and, and, you know, he, he,
0: this was an exception.
1: He said, this was an exception. And basically what he put on social media was, you're never going to hear, hear me play Van Halen songs again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, enjoy it. Cause it was special. The other thing that stood out for me is the section where they brought out Nancy Wilson from heart. Um, and I'm like, I'm, I'm watching the clip and I, I knew who they were going to bring out to sing because I was watching it after the fact, but you know, they kept the crowd in suspense a little bit and you know, they bring Nancy Wilson out and they're like, if Nancy Wilson's here, we're going to have to play a heart song. Cause Taylor, Taylor Hawkins loved heart and, and, and talk about an underappreciated group. That group is freaking phenomenal. Um, but I'm like, who are they going to get to? play a heart song and sing a heart song and i mean i mean think about it who, who the heck is going to sing ann wilson's vocals i mean it's it's like really kind of hard to do and i'm not i'm not sure if you have you listened to the that that piece where pink no. does the the vocals no. listen to it I, it it blew me away like i'm like okay you know and and dave Grohl said who are we going to get to do you know the vocals for this classic heart song pink pink can do the vocals for it. and and she can like she was amazing she was absolutely amazing so i i I was just blown away i mean I, i i know how talented she is but it just reinforced what an amazing range she has like you know that that whole like crazy range that you have to sing for that song just absolutely amazing that's all i got all
0: right